Luke 24, starting to verse, read at verse 13. Now, at that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have been happened here these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things, then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if they were going, he was going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us. For it is nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went to stay in with them. And when he was at the table with him, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with us on the road and he opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem where they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we confess this is the word of the Lord. And we pray, Father, as we hear that word declared to us now, that you would help us to treat it like that by your Holy Spirit's help. Please, would these be words not of one person, uh, but, Father, words from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's easy, isn't it, to think that skepticism about the resurrection is a modern phenomenon. We imagine, quite often, that the culture back then were more gullible. They were more predisposed to believing things like people rising from the dead. 
But now, of course, we're in a scientific age. It's 2021, and we don't believe in things like that anymore. And so that story that's underpinned our civilization for 2,000 years becomes just that, a story. But actually, in our passage this morning, that caricature couldn't be any further from the truth. Because here in our passage, we meet the most skeptical of people, people who won't even believe in the resurrection when the resurrection is happening right by their side. See, here are two people that fit just as well in the 21st century as they do in the first century. And here's the thing, by the end of it, their minds and their actions have completely changed. And Luke puts this in here to show us that the resurrection is far more than a story. It is true, and it should change us. We see, first of all, why belief is so difficult. Secondly, why belief is credible. And thirdly, why belief is possible. Why is belief so difficult is the first question. Well, as I say, we meet two disciples. We're not told much about them. Uh, One is called Cleopas. But rather than being told uh, who they are, we're told about how they feel and where they're going. See, verse 13 tells us uh, that uh, they're going to a village named Emmaus. And that mention of Emmaus, it's just a little hint, isn't it, that actually what we're dealing with here is historical record, not myth or story. These are real people in a real place going uh, in real time. But at the same time, this journey to Emmaus is hugely symbolic. And in fact, I think it's a journey we all find ourselves on. See, their walk to Emmaus is actually a massive low point in Luke's gospel. Um, If you've read Luke, you'll know that Luke kind of hinges his gospel uh, right in the middle, chapter 9, verse 51. And from that point on, Jesus' mission is to go to Jerusalem. And everything in the gospel after that point is heading towards Jerusalem. But here, it takes a different turn. See, Luke's gospel, um, uh, Luke himself was a medical doctor, but I'm pretty sure his second favorite subject was geography, uh, because he shows us uh, some real significance in these turning points. As I say, everything's been going to Jerusalem, but now it changes. Uh, nine, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 9, verse 31, he says this, about Jesus, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, if you've been here in previous weeks, here's an exciting fact for you. Uh, If we could just have that verse back on, that'd be great. That word departure in the original is the word exodus. That's cool, isn't it? So actually, Jesus here is speaking of his exodus, but the point is that exodus is going to take place in Jerusalem. And actually, you see that idea uh, in verse 19. Um, Jesus asked them, what things are you talking about? And they say about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Now, to call someone powerful in word and deed, well, that's the same title given to Moses. You read it in Acts chapter 7. And notice what they say, verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. See, you can just feel their sadness, can't you? They expected another Moses, another leader who would go in and take down their enemies. 
But now look at how they're feeling. Verse 20, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped. There's no massive plagues. There's no triumphant dividing of the sea. There's no victory. Just a cross, nails, shame, and defeat. And that journey, that turn away from Jerusalem, isn't just them popping home or going to the service station. It is them turning away from their confidence in God's plan, God's exodus that was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. You see it so often, don't you, um, when uh, uh, there's a kind of movement in the political structure of a nation uh, you see images of protesters taken to the streets, and your, your hopes are very high, if it's a good cause, that um, they'll be successful. But sadly, so often, the government gets the upper hand, the army moves in, uh, terror reigns, and what do the protesters do? Well, they flee. They move away. And as you see the crowd getting smaller and smaller, the hope of a new future fades And that's what's happening here as the disciples head to Emmaus with their heads down and their hearts broken. They think the plan has failed. See, we hoped he would redeem Israel, but he didn't. Now, if you're looking into the Christian claims, and we welcome people to come to St. Mary's and investigate Christianity for themselves. We're all in lots of different places, so uh, you're very welcome. But just notice here, there's no sense of gullibility on the part of these disciples. There's no sense in kind of wishful thinking, kind of conjuring up a resurrection. Rather, they're like any any one of us if we saw our leader die in front of our eyes. But perhaps we too find ourselves on that same road to Emmaus. We like the idea of hope. We even perhaps like the idea of what Christianity speaks about hope and a new world. We long for a better world, for a world of justice, for a world where life will be satisfying. We long to be in Jerusalem, but then we just can't get over reality. We look at our world, we look at its pandemics and pain, its disease and death, and we think it cannot be true. And I guess lots of us will start off pretty young and optimistic that the world is a wonderful place and we can change it, but as we grow older, we realize that life has its sharp edges and we've become increasingly cynical. And so we too walk that road to Emmaus thinking the plan's failed, it's all over, it cannot be true. Uh, The comedian Ricky Gervais in one of his um, shows says these words in his closing lines, we're all going to die, so we should have a laugh. The audience applauds, he walks off. And that's pretty much it, isn't it? If if the resurrection isn't true, we're all going to die, so we should have a laugh. But of course, there's an irony, isn't there, in this passage? And this brings us on to our second point, why belief is credible. Because we've not mentioned this, but there is a traveling companion with the disciples. I don't know if you noticed him in verse 15. It's hard to miss him, uh, but they did. Uh, Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing them. Strange verse, isn't it? Verse 16. Why are they kept from recognizing him? Well, we're not told exactly, 
It might be that it was so unthinkable to see Jesus that they didn't recognize him. You know how if you see someone out of context in uh, somewhere you don't expect, you don't quite recognize them. I remember seeing a school friend in Spain and just not clocking it because you don't expect to see a friend in uh, Spain. But actually, I think there's something far deeper going on here, actually something more spiritual. Because this idea of not seeing actually is connected with Jesus' death and resurrection in other places. Look at uh, chapter 18 here with me. This is Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. He says this, For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But here's the thing, verse 34, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. See, one of the results of the world walking away from its maker is that we cannot walk back to our God on our own. See, God, it isn't just a case of God giving the right information and we always have the right response. Actually, our minds, our hearts are tainted by the effect of our rebellion. But interestingly, Luke doesn't kind of do a detailed analysis of why, what causes their blindness. Rather, he speaks about what their blindness causes, because they cannot see Jesus right in front of them. And for us, it's utterly comical, isn't it? I mean, we should be laughing as we read this. I mean, it's a pantomime moment where we say, he's behind you or he's beside you. Because Jesus asked them, what's just happened in Jerusalem? And they explain uh, about Jesus to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever had that moment uh, where you're explaining a story about someone, and uh, the person, this often happens to me, I forget things all the time, and they go, Rob, I was there. You're talking about me. And that's the kind of idea here. They even talk about, get this, the angelic uh, announcement in verse 22. In addition, some of our women amazed us, they said. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. But they still don't get it. And as a reader, you're thinking to yourself, why are you not putting two and two together? Why do you not see that he's right there by the sides of you? But that's the point. This is kind of Luke's gotcha moment. See, Luke is showing us that we don't see, even though the evidence is right in front of us. I don't know if you've come across the invisible gorilla experiment. Has anyone come across that? It's absolutely fascinating. It is true. Uh, Go and look it up afterwards. It was done about 20 years ago. And um, what it was is one of these kind of um, test psychologists do, and they showed the participants a video of two teams of people Uh, one with white T-shirts on, one with black T-shirts. I think it was about six people in each team. And they had a basketball each, and they were passing the basketball around each person. And the participants were to watch the video and um, think to themselves, uh, uh, ask themselves how many times the basketball was passed around. And so uh, the experiment ran. The participants uh, counted a number of times. uh, It's 35 or something like that. And uh, almost everyone got it right. And they thought to themselves, well, we're pretty chuffed with that. We got it right. But then the host of this video said, did you see the gorilla? And we're like, what gorilla? We just counted the basketballs. And it turned out there was a gorilla that walked on scene 
for nine seconds, stood in the middle, beat its chest, and then walked off. Now, you wouldn't believe it. Um, you can't really do the experiment because I've told you the kind of punchline now. But uh, uh, sorry to spoil it. But it, try it on a friend uh, when you get home because they won't see the gorilla. And it's a, an experiment that shows us just how blind we can be. See, we get fixated on what's apparent to us and we miss what's really there. And it's like that with the disciples. They get so fixated on the fact that the Messiah has died and the tomb is empty, and they just can't see that actually the plan is on track. Now, if you're a skeptic this morning, this helps you massively, doesn't it? Because we're not dealing here with the gullible people. We're not dealing with people who have had a brain transplant. We're dealing with people like all of us who would see the death of Jesus as the end of the story. But actually, their minds change. In verse 25, we see that Jesus teaches the Scriptures, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But it's actually at dinner, as Jesus passes around the complimentary bread, that the penny drops. See, verse 30, he says, uh, Luke says, when he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Now, lots of people have wondered why, and I've wondered this uh, in preparing this, why the bread bit? Uh, why the breaking of bread? Uh, some people said, oh, it's uh, kind of about Holy Communion. And, um, uh, you know, that, I'm not saying that couldn't be true, but it, it, there's no wine here. It doesn't seem clear that Luke is making that link. But actually, there's a much stronger link with something Jesus does earlier when he feeds the 5,000 in chapter 9. And the reason is, is because that same issue of not seeing and seeing comes up. Uh, here's some verses from chapter 9. Uh, uh, before the feeding happens, we read that Herod heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So Herod is kind of symbolic of everyone at that point, just thinking, who is this guy? Uh, is he Elijah? Is he one of the prophets? But then Jesus does this miracle of feeding the 5,000. Notice how Luke describes it, though. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave it to them to the disciples to set it before the crowd. And then immediately afterwards, we read this happen. Then they said to him, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, pardon the kind of mixed metaphors here, but it's kind of like a sandwich. Uh, the bread in the middle, uh, yeah, actually I'm going to confuse people saying it this way, but you get the point. that They can't see, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 takes place, and then they can see. And Luke is showing us that actually what Jesus does here opens his disciples' eyes. How does it do that? Well, because Jesus is performing the very role that God did back in the Exodus. Uh, we've seen, haven't we, in the Exodus, and this is why I chose this passage this morning, we've seen in the Exodus over the last few weeks, if we've been here, that actually God miraculously fed his people in the desert. And as Jesus does that same uh, miracle, as he steps into God's shoes, 
people finally see who he is. And back in chapter 24, with this feed in 2.0, these disciples see who Jesus is. See, we all know resurrections don't happen. It's not that we kind of ignore the ordinary laws of biology as Christians. But the thing is, Jesus isn't ordinary. He is from God. He is God. And if we entertain the possibility that there could be a God, that this universe has got a creator, then we have to accept the possibility that he might be able to bring life from death in his son. And that is what Jesus is showing us in his resurrection. He appears to these two disciples, but we read later in verse 34 that he also appears to Peter, called Simon. Uh, At the end of chapter 24, he appears to all the disciples in Jerusalem, or pretty much all of them, possibly hundreds. And then in 1 Corinthians, one of the earlier letters in the New Testament, uh, we read this. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers uh, at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some of them had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the uh, the apostles. Now, when he says they're fallen asleep there, obviously it's a metaphor for death. But notice what he says, some of them are still alive. Some of them you can go and ask. Some of them you can go and verify what I've said with. See, Jesus' resurrection was not done in some quiet corner of the world. But in real time, in real history, with real people. But how does that help us today? I mean, great for these disciples in the first century. They got to see Jesus. What a moment that must have been. But I guess for lots of us, we're asked the question, well, that's not going to happen to us. We're not on the road to Emmaus in that sense. But third and finally, I want us to see why belief is possible. Because something surprising, I don't know if you notice it, happens just after the disciples see Jesus. See, just as they recognize Jesus, he disappears immediately. And we'll come back to why in a moment. But notice their response in verse 32. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Uh, They're speaking about uh, the the, the content of Jesus' message in verse 26. Did not the Christ have to suffer all these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. See, notice, after they see Jesus, they, they rebuke themselves. Did we not get it when he was explaining the scriptures, they say? Notice they don't say, oh, come on, how did we not see him? He was right beside us. They don't say that. They say, did our hearts not burn when the Scriptures were opened? See, on this journey, uh, Jesus explains that his death and resurrection is not an idea dreamt up in the first century. It is spoken about for hundreds of years before, perhaps even a thousand. See, over multiple books and multiple authors, this resurrection moment has been prefigured. It's in books as early as Genesis. Uh, We've seen over recent weeks how it's alluded to in Exodus. It's spoken about by kings like David, promised by prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. There's been a a huge uh, pre-match build-up to this very event. And Luke 
draws our attention to these scriptures to remind us that that's the case. See, what happens after they see Jesus? Well, he vanishes. And I think we're told that to show us that actually they don't need Jesus in front of them to believe in the resurrection. See, as Jesus vanishes, he's prefiguring what he's going to do 40 days later as he ascends and sends his disciples out. And you might think to yourself, well, Jesus is gone. How are we going to prove that he's risen? But actually, Luke's showing us that we don't need him there at a dinner to prove to us his resurrection. Because we have the Scriptures. They had the Scriptures. Everything to give us the belief in the resurrection is before us. See, a lot of people say, and I've said this myself, I believe it if God makes himself a bit clearer. He's got to give me a sign or a kind of angel at the bottom of my bed. And if that happens, then I'll believe it. I mean, even if he did that, I think it's questionable whether we believe it. They don't believe uh, after hearing about uh, an angel appearing to the women. But the point is, we're not waiting for those things because God has made it clear. He's made it clear in the scriptures. He's appeared. A question we're asking ourselves at the moment in light of the pandemic is why didn't we act earlier? Why didn't we see what was coming? Why were we better prepared? I mean, there'd be a big public inquiry, I'm sure, asking those sort of questions. And as we look back a year later, sadly, with over 100,000 deaths, we think to ourselves, why didn't we listen to the warning signs that were there? This is not the first pandemic in history. But actually, that same sense can be said of Jesus' resurrection. Obviously, a completely different bit of news. But that same sense of why didn't we see? See, we celebrate Easter each year. It's full of metaphors of new life, of eggs and chocolate and lambs, although lambs aren't very alive when on your Sunday lunch. But you get the, the idea. We've, we've celebrated this. We've heard these things spoken time and time again. We should have known. Our civilization uh, is built on these truths. For hundreds of years, these have been um, believed by people all over the world. And Luke says we should have known. We carry that instinctively optimistic sense about the world, which isn't universal. I would argue that it comes from this kind of idea of a resurrection. But where do we get that hope from? Well, Luke says we should have known. And perhaps you are looking in to this message and this message of the resurrection, and you like the idea of it, but you just can't get beyond its believability. But Luke is saying, look, examine the Scriptures. See if it's credible. Look at the people who were there. See, I did that myself. I thought um, until I was 21 that these were stories that were nice. They got me to do the right thing when I was a child, although that didn't work very successfully. And uh, as I grew up, they looked less and less compelling, and I assumed that they stayed in the uh, primary school. But actually, as I read Luke's gospel, of all things, actually I saw this is not children's story. This is real people, real history, real events. But for those of us who do believe in this event... As we close, I just want us to look at this uh, response of the disciples. See, they rebuke themselves in verse 32, but in verse 
33, we read that they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. So they got up, they returned at once. Uh, Literally, the idea that very hour, they got off, they didn't bother finishing their dinner, and they went back to Jerusalem. Now, remember what we've said about the geography. This is hugely significant. They've repented of going to Emmaus, and they're going back to the very place that Jesus' plan was to be accomplished in Jerusalem. See, what seemed like a failure, they now clocked was a success. What seemed like the end, they now saw was the beginning. Because Jesus had risen, because the Scriptures, all that the Scriptures had spoken of, had now been achieved. See, their empty hope that He had redeemed Israel was wonderfully turned around so that they saw Jesus would lead an exodus, not just for Israel, but for the whole of the world. And as Christians today, as we remember this event, it reminds us, doesn't it, of why we can be on the front foot with our hope and optimism. It's not just wishful thinking to kind of get us through uh, the downs of life. It's not just something to kind of give us something to do on a Sunday morning. But actually, this is the declaration that there is hope in our world, even in the light of pandemics and pain and death. The plan of God is not over. We don't have to go to Emmaus. Death has not won. Evil has not triumphed because Christ is risen. Our Father, we praise you so much for this event. We praise you, Father, that just as your plan looked like it, was, it had failed, it was wonderfully declared to be victorious. And so, Father, we pray as a community and for all of us, Father, that we would have the confidence that these disciples later experience that your Son is risen. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.